Hello, and welcome to Physical Attraction. This episode, we have a guest on the show that I'm very excited about. Professor Steve Keen is an economist and author who has been a long-standing critic of neoclassical economics, which has included writing the best-selling debunking economics book and hosting the podcast of the same name, predicting the 2007-8 financial crisis several years in advance, as well as developing several alternative models of the macroeconomy. In recent years, he has turned his attention to how neoclassical economics has tried to deal with the issue of climate change. And, well, the fact that his paper is called The Appallingly Bad Neoclassical Economics of Climate Change probably tells you something about how he has found their response. I was lucky enough to detain him for the interview for quite a while, so I've had to split the interview into two parts. They complement each other, but they can be listened to independently, depending on what you're most interested in. Although, of course, I would say listen to both. The first part deals with Professor Keane's background, his critique of neoclassical economics, the parallels and differences between economics and physics as disciplines, and little about financial crises and possible steps we could take to deal with the economic fallout of COVID-19. The second part dives deep into the critique of neoclassical economics of climate change, specifically how economists have consistently been overconfident in their projections of climate damages, and arguably helped lead us towards weak climate policies, and how we might hope to change this in the future. Now I think this is an incredibly important message, and a subject that we need to discuss and debate, because unfortunately this neoclassical economics of climate change has been extremely influential on policymakers to the point where one of the main culprits has the so-called Nobel Prize in Economics. So I really do urge everyone to listen to that. Without further ado then, the interview. One of the points that really got me fascinated by economics is that it is this academic discipline that has a lot of direct influence over our lives. The prevailing wisdom in economic orthodoxy, you know, it's, it's appealed to to justify political decisions. We've talked about them, deregulation, trade deals, suppressing the minimum wage, government austerity, whatever it may be. And Economists have also had a major, major hand in dealing with our policy response to climate change. On your show, you talk about climate change often as one of the challenges that austerity prevents us from addressing as well. But I I just wonder when you specifically became interested in some of the economic arguments that are made around climate change. And uh, we'll get on to Nordhaus after that. Okay. Well, my my first reading on environmental economics was reading Limits to Growth back in 1972. Um, so I was always aware of that technology and that approach. And I was also aware, I, I'm having an interest in engineering and physics. I always thought we, economic theory has to ultimately integrate with the role, role of energy. And I started working on that um, more seriously in the, uh, sort of the mid-10s, uh, 2015, 2016. And I was working with a guy called Bob Ayers, who's a physicist who's done a lot of work to um, try to bring the role of energy into economics properly. And but I mean it certainly advances uh, that Bob had made uh, working with Kummel uh, as well, um, but it it wasn't satisfactory to my way of thinking because they were still using the idea that energy could be brought in as the third what they call factor of production. So you had labour, capital, and energy. Um, and Bob's work that was more sophisticated than what neoclassicals have done there, but they were treating energy as an independent input into production. And neoclassicals ignore it completely, so their model simply had output being produced by labour and capital without energy. So I was stuck in all this sort of thinking, and uh, as it happens, this is just a, a, one of those little ways things occur to you. Um, Bob's house was full of sculptures, and I was walking back from the bathroom one night, and the thought popped into my mind, that labour without energy is a corpse and capital without energy is a sculpture. 
And I suddenly realized that what we'd done, rather than making energy a third factor, you had to make energy the input into labor and capital. And I sat down and 10 minutes later, I had the equations out and I thought, is that all? Um, but it, th that, that then meant that I then had a, a model of essential role of energy in production. And of course, that also means you essentially have waste and you have the, the, the second law of thermodynamics turns up implicitly in that because you, you must have some energy which is wasted in, in the effort of doing useful work, which is what you can redefine GDP as. So then having done that, I thought I'm now I'm ready to go and take a look at what economists have done in climate change. And that's when I started reading, this is about 2000 and, uh, 2018, maybe in 2019, I started to read the neoclassicals on climate change. And that really began with no William Nordhaus being given, I call it the Fobel Prize, as in fake Nobel Prize for economics, which is actually a prize financed by and established by the Swedish Central Bank to promote neoclassical economics. But anyway, he got the prize and I thought, I'll take a look at his paper. And there he has, and people can find this on the web, go and search for uh, Nordhaus Nobel speech maybe nine or 10 slides there. And slide six shows that the optimal path for the temperature for the planet peaks at four degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels in 2150. And I went, okay, how the f did you get that number? And so I, I went and I started taking a look at it and saw how it was derived. And there was a particular paper by uh, somebody that I really, really um, find incredibly unpleasant. And he's very happy about it. He likes to be regarded as unpleasant, Richard Toll wrote a paper in 2009 called the, I think, the Economic Effects of Climate Change. And there I'm reading this way and, and see, they had a whole bunch of empirical estimates of the impact of climate change. And there were things like a three degree increase in, in, in global temperature will cause like a 2% fall in GDP. And I'm reading through this stuff and suddenly see that one of the ways they did this was by they, they tried to take papers from scientists they, scientists they claimed and what's going to be the impact on maize and the impact on tourism and blah, 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 and add up all the impacts that they said. And, and that's the that's Adam up approach. They said an alternative approach uh, was to use data on GDP and temperature today and get a, you know, a, a, a regression fit of data on income and data on, on temperature on the planet today and then use those same numbers as a proxy for climate change. And I went, you have got to be kidding. That is so insane. And I found that's what they've done. They have literally made up their own numbers. And for those who don't know, I should add that Richard Toll has been an academic advisor to the Global Warming Policy Foundation, which is like the Tufton Street mob um, who have been frustrating climate policy for many decades. If you go on something like Smog, uh, who keep track of climate denial, you will see a very long page about his economics. And you can argue about how uh, disingenuous or otherwise these people's research is, even just from that perspective. But, um, but th th this mm. particular assumption that you're talking about here is, is this idea that th they're trying to work out a correlation between temperature today and GDP today. And so they will notice something like there's five degrees Celsius of difference between Florida and North Dakota as US states, but their GDP is fairly similar because they're both in America predominantly. And, mm. and, that would, and that somehow means that, oh, well, you have a five degree difference and the GDP difference is quite limited. Uh, therefore, GDP is not that well correlated with temperature. And that in itself is kind of a, a daft way of just sort of plotting two variables together without thinking about the interplay at all. Um, but then even then to say, OK, well, we can extrapolate that to when temperatures change um, is, is, is another aspect where this goes wrong. It's just outrageous. Everything they've done is simply outrageous. Every time I go looking at what neoclassicals have done to find out how they got a result, which is to me patently absurd, 
what they've done is worse than I expect. So, like, um, to give you the, the, the two main ways they've made up the numbers to uh, fit their models to climate change, the one that they call the enumerative approach, and that's the adding up approach. But an essential part of the adding up is what you decide to add up. Now, here's a quote. This is uh, William Nordhaus, 1991, uh, where he first originated this approach, the adding up approach. Uh, have a, he said, Table 5 shows a sectoral breakdown of US, United States national income into sectors that are most sensitive, moderately sensitive, and very sensitive to climate change. Our estimate is approximately 3% of United States national output is produced in highly sensitive sectors, another 10% in moderately sensitive sectors, and about 87% in sectors that are negligibly affected by climate change. Now look at what his list of negligibly affected industries, manufacturing and mining, 26%. Finance, insurance and real estate, 11.5. Trade and other services, 28%. Government, 14%, these sort of numbers. He's, he's leaving out, he says nothing, nothing that, the only stuff that's going to be affected by climate change is stuff exposed to the weather. The rest is not going to happen. That's literally their understanding of climate change. So we should make this very, very clear then. When we're talking about these models that Nordhaus and so on have, and they have some crazy figures where, for example, the world can endure four degrees of warming and lose uh, 6% of GDP or six degrees of warming and lose 8% mm. of GDP. We should make a few things extremely clear to people. Number one is that, of course, in all of these models, the assumption is that the economy is going to continue to grow and that it will be much bigger yep. um, by 2100, say. It may have doubled or tripled in size by 2100 compared to the way that it is today. So in that context, knocking off uh, 8% of your economy it, it looks like a very small problem. And the alternative they would sort of postulate or argue would be stopping growth, perhaps. It, it, it is always going to make sense if this is your calculation to carry on growing the economy, ignoring climate change, burning as many fossil fuels as you want, and just to take the hit, which they calculate to be relatively small. So we should say that these drops in GDP that Nordhaus and so on are predicting w would look to economists like a fairly decent trade-off for being able to continue to use fossil fuels. Does that sound fair? Absolutely. And I can even quote, I think, I, I guess, I don't know, there are, there, are nine, there are 10 possible people I could be quoting here. This is a quote from a paper uh, by Nordhaus, and he's quoting his experts on climate change, one of whom was Larry Summers, and I'm guessing Larry is the one who's responsible for this. Uh, the second impression is that for most respondents, these are the, the majority by far are economists, the best guess of an impact of a three-degree warming by 2090, in the words of respondent 17, would be inverted commas, small potatoes. Only three respondents expected the impact of the scenario to be more than 3% of global world product. In terms of economic growth, the median estimated impact of scenario A, which is a three-degree three increase by 2090, over the next century, he says, would reduce the growth of per capita income from, say, 1.5% per year to 1.485% per year. One respondent summarised the relaxed view, quote, I'm impressed with the view that it takes a very sharp pencil to see the difference between the world with and without climate change or with and without mitigation. So they will draw their graphs and they'll say, here's the world where we act on climate change, the economy grows slightly slower than it would otherwise, here's the world where we don't act, it basically looks exactly the same, mm. and therefore they just don't view it as a problem. And part of this is coming from all of these extremely mm. flawed assumptions about what the impacts will be. So, you know, from my perspective as, as a climate scientist, the, the fact that Nordhaus predicted that the best equilibrium temperature for the world would be four degrees above pre-industrial and three degrees above where it is now, blasting through the Paris Agreement by a very long way, 
so we as climate scientists, we sort of know that four degrees is going to be a pretty chaotic world at best, but actually understanding how he came. So this, this assumption of Nordhausers was known and I think mocked by this community in climate science. But what we don't have is the understanding of just how shoddy the assumptions are that have gone into this. So this idea that 87% of the economy is not affected because it's indoors. I mean, that's like a childish assumption, really. Yeah, it's the sort of thing, you'd, you'd, if, 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 if your five-year-old said it, you'd say, no, Sonny, you've got it wrong. It's like real you estate know? is not going to be affected by the fact that Miami is underwater. Oh, that's interesting. Well, no, Miami will be affected, but the rest is going to be okay. Actually, he has finance, insurance, and balance real estate. Now, there's 11.4%. So he would have lived on maybe 0.5% of GDP for the stuff that's exposed to the waterline. The, one of the flaws that you find with it is this idea that GDP is fungible. So the, the agricultural sector, mm. I looked it up, accounts for about 4% of GDP in total. So you can put mm. into your model, oh, I've wiped out 100% of agriculture, and I've only lost 4% of the GDP. And that's not going to sound that bad. But, but to, to people on the ground, without agriculture, you can't yeah, have anything You'd be dead. We're, we're, we'll starve to death. Yeah. We'll starve to death, yeah. And, and what they, this is, it, is, it is a non-physical approach to economics, mm-hmm. non-physical. And this is why I'm actually involved with Charlie Hall, whom you may know, uh, in trying to build what we call the Biophysical Economics Institute. We have to have a physically grounded economics. And, and what they do is they'll have this, uh, uh, you know, they, they have a, a set of numbers about temperature, wave their hands and set a number about GDP. There's absolutely nothing about the physical production process that makes any sense whatsoever. Uh, between you know, the beginning and the end of the argument. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I mean, as well as this idea of, okay, GDP isn't fungible uh, between different sectors. So for example, you can wipe out, uh, I don't know, you could probably wipe out the, the movie industry and we'd all still survive um, slightly less happily mm. um, and take out the same amount of GDP. Maybe more, you never <laughs> yeah, know. Maybe, yeah. Uh, maybe we'd have to talk to each other, I don't know. But you know, you can wipe out agriculture, 4% of GDP drop. And that is, um, you know, disastrous for the global economy. And of course, embedded in this as well are the issues of equity and justice. Agriculture may only be 4% of global GDP, but in some poorer countries, it's 25% of their total GDP. And for people, 60% of the world's population depends directly on agriculture for their income. And of course, we all depend on agriculture... (laughs) for the food we need to survive. So your real estate prices are not necessarily going to be the same in a world where agriculture has been destabilised and all of these people no longer have a source of income and everyone else has less food and the price of that has gone up and increased the price of everything else. You're not going to be able to say that the agricultural industry is of equal value to the global economy than, say, the US property market because it simply won't work out like that. But also this idea of fungibility, I mean, we think a lot about justice and equity and climate change and if you take off the top 25 countries, the 168 remaining nations only account for 17% of global GDP. The assumption that everything is just fungible into this one global GDP number is so oversimplified as a, a lens for looking on this problem. An 8% drop in global GDP could be equivalent to wiping dozens of nations off the map, you know, which would have repercussions in itself. Uh, I don't know how much GDP you'd lose if you lost all of Bangladesh. I'm not saying that climate change is going to mean that we lose Bangladesh or the total collapse of agriculture or so on. But the point is that if the only metric that you're using to assess these things is global GDP, then you will miss out some of these horrifying things that could be happening under the hood of that one number, which is why it almost seems like it's not a problem to think about in those terms. That's why like, I think one of the worst things Nordhaus did was destroy the credibility of a limits to growth study because that was the, the nascent technology to show the dependence of one sector of the economy 
upon the other sectors and the environment itself. And there was a physical interdependence in that in that model. Whatever you might think about the way they, they devised their original numbers for it, there was a physical interdependence between one sector and another. So agriculture was part of it. And if agriculture went to zero, then so did population, that sort of thing. Uh, whereas with these guys, uh, agriculture can go to zero and you lose 4% of GDP. Yeah, and it's just bizarre. Um, and hmm. it, it's kind of amazing that this gets into the published literature, let alone that it becomes influential. That's the thing. I mean, that's that's why I, I make that point in the paper I've written for Globalisations and one I'm working on uh, for a more prestigious journal on the same topic, uh, that how does this stuff get past referees is a really important question. And the answer is that economists have persuaded themselves that you can make what they call simplifying assumptions to get over logical impasses in their in their theory uh, where those simplifying assumptions are critical. If, they're, they're all, if the theory only works if the assumption is correct. Uh, but they, they say well, that they, they call it a simplifying assumption all the damn time. And, you know, of course, any scientist has to make simplifying assumptions. So we think, oh, that's okay. But what they're passing is things like, let's assume everybody has the same correct expectations about where shares are going to go and then build a model of the stock market. Or let's assume, and this is, I mean, even to get a downward sloping demand curve, uh, Samuelson at one stage was willing to assume that there's a benevolent dictator who redistributes income before trade, so everybody's happy about the distribution of income. Uh, you know, absurdly nonsensical things that are done and they get this cover of simplifying assumptions. So once they've softened their minds by swallowing this stuff over, uh, you know, 20 and 30 years of, of an academic uh, education, they can see stuff like this and not even blink, and therefore they'll pass it and say, well, it's just a simplifying assumption. What are you complaining about? No, it's not a simplifying assumption. It's critically important that that assumption is true, and if it's false, which it patently is false, so is the theory. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I want to come into some more of these uh, critiques of, of the Nordhaus economics on climate change specifically, just so that I think that you don't even need to be an economist to see how absurd some of this stuff is. That's that's really important. I just having yeah. having you there. A lot of scientists, I think, there's a, there's a scientist. You know, if you know, you're, if you're a, somebody working in, in in quantum mechanics and you've got somebody else working in thermodynamics, you're going to know that if you're going to try to comment on thermodynamics, you've got to learn a lot of really complicated mm-hmm. stuff. And therefore, you will defer to that person as the expert in that field. And this sense of deference, so scientists have applied to economists as well. I, I think maybe a guy that I correspond with occasionally on Twitter. Ken Rice? Seems to do this and say, well, it's Ken Rice, yeah. It's too complicated. I, 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 he, he, he restrains himself from reading the economic literature because he thinks, I'd need to understand a lot of economics to read a literature in the first place. You don't have to be have any training at all to read somebody who's assuming that 87% of the economy will be unaffected by climate change to know there's something wrong. And therefore, they've, they've got away with this not being criticised by disciplines like science because of the, the genuine, genuine and general deference that scientists have in one field to scientists in another. But economists aren't scientists. You know, I, I, I know Ken, and I think his, his deference, you know, comes from the fact that he's in one area of science and we in science don't particularly like people coming in and suddenly criticising stuff without having a background in the literature. But when the assumptions that are coming into it are this bad, it is it is everyone's place to come in and criticise this. So there's, there's one figure that I want to talk about, which is this idea that the damages from climate change are basically quadratic in temperature. So if everyone's thinking of their <laughs> yeah. nice quadratic uh, equation here, that has a minimum to it. And that gives you this idea that there is some optimal temperature for civilization. We've We've immediately distilled everything to two numbers in a completely insane way. 
One is global mean temperature, which we know is somewhat correlated with the climate change impacts that we have. And the other one is GDP, which we've talked about being negative because, you know, under the hood of the GDP number, the global GDP number, there be monsters, there be many different societies that we could potentially have. Um, And this idea that you can just deal with climate change as an idea of two uh, lines on a graph that intersect uh, is, is crazy to me. And the idea that the ideal temperature for the global economy is not the one that we've had during the Holocene, which all of humanity has adapted to live in, also seems to me to be mm. quite um, quite a bizarre statement to make. But um, but if you, take, if you take the quadratic seriously, then you end up with a figure that the world could endure, say, six degrees of warming and only lose 8% of GDP in the model or whatever it may be. And that's exactly what he says in a 2018 paper in an American Economic uh, Review. But since it's a quadratic, it's symmetrical, right? So if you cooled by six exactly. degrees Celsius... Yep. Um, they would expect to damage GDP by a few percentage points. And we know that that would be a new ice age where all of England and most of North America would be under massive ice sheets. And, you know, if the economists are asked to rationalise this point of view, they'll say, oh, I guess everyone just moves south. You know, I mean, some of this stuff is just insane. It is insane. And this is um, like the the critical thing we're talking about here are tipping points in the climate. Mm -hmm. And I, I, everything they do, it, it is it is so aggravating for me to have to read this stuff because it is such garbage. Uh, you know, I, I feel like I've, 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 I've not only have I got the task of Hercules of cleaning the Aegean stables, I've got to go and classify each each turd as I go <laughs> through doing it. But the, the, the classic was uh, was work by Tim Lenton, whom I mentioned you might know. Do you know Tim Lenton? I don't know him, but I know of his work on tipping points and, uh, and geoengineering. So Tim has done a lot of work on trying to quantify, uh, classify and quantify the tipping points we face. And there's a paper in 2008, which is called Tipping Elements in the Earth's Climate or something. I haven't quite got the title in front of you, but Tipping Elements is part of it. And it was a, a very uh, you know, carefully carried out survey of experts where he pulled together people working on a whole range of different elements of the climate, you know, the thermohaline circulation, the Greenland ice sheet, uh, and the... Um, uh, El Nino, et cetera, et cetera, and said, as experts, postulate what temperature level would cause a, a critical change in the state of that particular system. And uh, they came up with eight uh, elements which uh, could be triggered this century by temperature changes of between one half a degree, which is the Arctic summer sea ice, up to uh, three degrees, which is what would be necessary to trigger uh, the, uh, losing the West Antarctic ice sheet or beginning the process of losing it, uh, losing and so and so on, and and put it all together. And Nordhaus, I, I first became aware of this paper by by Tim when I read Nordhaus, and this is in reading the manual for his DICE program, DIC, which stands for Dynamic Integrated Climate and Economics, a wanky title that doesn't itself live up to. Um, but he said, there have been a, a few systems... Oh, this is actually no paper called The Climate Casino. The first, I'll give the quote from the, the, the DICE manual. The current version assumes that damages are a quadratic function of temperature chain, change and does not include sharp thresholds or tipping points, but this is consistent with the survey by Lenton. Mm-hmm. Now, as soon as I saw that, hang on a second, that's a, that's a, that's a flag Let's go me. and read the survey by Lenton. Well, I, well, first thing, of course, we're, I'd better look for the article name. So I go to the bibliography for the, this manual, and there's no mention of Lenton in the bibliography. So I, I go to a search, Lenton 2008, bang, I find the paper. Now, I'm going to read out um, one after the other 
Leighton's conclusions, the first few the three sentences of his conclusion, and Nordhaus's interpretation. This is conclusion. Society may be lulled into a false sense of security by smooth projections of global change. Nordhaus, the current version assumes that damage is a quadratic function of temperature and does not include sharp tipping points, but this is consistent with the survey by Lenton. Next sentence by, 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 by Lenton. Our synthesis of present knowledge suggests that a variety of tipping elements could reach their critical point within the century and are anthropogenic climate change. Nordhaus, their review finds no critical tipping elements with a time horizon of less than 300 years until global temperatures have increased by at least 3 degrees Celsius. Next sentence by Lenton. The greatest threats are the tipping of the Arctic sea ice and the Greenland ice sheet, and at least five out of six other elements could surprise us by exhibiting a nearby tipping point. Nordhaus, the most, current tipping, the most important tipping points in their view have a threshold temperature tipping of three degrees or higher, uh, or have a time scale of at least 300 years. I mean, this is the equivalent... A, kid, a child would call that a lie. This is the equivalent of me representing your work to my listeners by saying that you love neoclassical economics and wish to preserve it against yeah. all the criticism, you know? It, it, exactly, it's exactly. It's bizarre. And it's just very this summary. tipping point yeah. thing is, is so important because this is where the damages would become non-linear. And you can't do this simple extrapolation mm. of saying, well, you know, we've seen one degree of warming. Perhaps we can estimate the damages that we expect from that. And we just assume that they'll scale with warming because th these these are the points where uh, critical systems in in the Earth system, you know, patterns of rainfall that are critical for agriculture, uh, heat waves that cross over thresholds from being merely damaging to making it no longer safe to go outside and work with. Um, you know, we talk about the wet bulb temperature threshold as a problem there. Um, when you get up yeah. to these higher temperatures, when you get up to two, three, four degrees Celsius, there are big regions of the world which start to have uh, high incidences of heat waves, which are simply fatal uh, to people who live there. Now, that's the kind of thing that your sort of nice linear GDP model is not going to be able to predict because you will have many large social problems that come from this, you know, climate refugees, wars for resources, uh, people having to move out of cities that are now uninhabitable, all this sort of thing, which simply can't be mm. extrapolated linearly from where we are now. But um, one problem with these tipping points, I think, is that we know that climate change is pushing the Earth system beyond realms that we've observed before. And frankly, I think people like Lenton would say, as they do in that paper, if we went to this optimal three or four degrees world that Nordhaus describes, there would be a non-zero risk of these very big uh, disastrous outcomes showing up and feedback loops that would take us beyond that temperature anyway. But mm. the uncertainty about such a trajectory and when and to what extent these feedback loops would kick in is very difficult to deal with in these... Uh, sort of single variable linear economic models. I mean, the best you seem to be able to do is to use a sort of discount rate to try and account for it. But how do you account for a, a sort of 5% chance of massive catastrophe with a discount rate? Yeah, you can't. I mean, this is the whole, I mean, this is the whole um, thing about neoclassicals. They can't handle it. Therefore, they assume it doesn't mm -hmm. happen. And, and that's what I, in, in reading, I mean, I was simply horrified by how Nordhaus read Lenten. And I've seen, since read, reading Lenton's own research, he's been trying to make the same case, though slightly more politely mm -hmm. than me. Um, but this is just an outrageously bad reading of his his paper. And then when you look at everything that they've done, and this includes not just Nordhaus, this is more recent researchers. I mean, even people that I quite like, Camille Mahatas, uh, who's at Cambridge, uh, 
uh, unpublished paper as yet, but linear does, does a bit of a nonlinear analysis of current data and current trends, then extrapolates it for a 3.2 degrees increase in temperature. So they are assuming no tipping points. And that is just nonsense when you're looking at the levels of temperature they're talking about. So Nordhaus quite blithely in this 2018 paper considered a six degree increase in temperature and said with his model it would cause an eight 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 percent fall in GDP. Now at six degrees, and you look at the subsequent work to Lenton's work by Stefan and so on, looking at uh, hothouse mm-hmm. earth, uh, every last tripping point that they have in that paper would be triggered at six degrees. And, and therefore you would have that complete nonlinear change in the nature of the system. And you simply can't. It, it's like pretending that you can increase the temperature of ice without it turning to mm-hmm. water. And yet that's what they do because they want to continue modelling somebody skating on it so they can't have it turning into water. So let's assume, you know, ice, ice will be maintained at two degrees above Celsius. Um, it, it is literally that bad. And that's why I want a scientist to get in there and take a look at this stuff because you don't need to know any economics to pull this apart and say this is tragically bad and these guys should be kicked off the IPCC and any other institution involved in deciding our policy on climate change. So it, it, it's it's really multiple layers of, of failure that I want to elucidate here. Mm. From First is this complete ignorance of tipping points, this extrapolation that changes are smooth when the best climate science says that they're not smooth. And that's why we have things like the Paris Agreement, which are trying to keep us to within a temperature limit where, you know, we have some hope of saying perhaps things don't look too different at two degrees Celsius to one degree Celsius, but at four degrees, they will look very different. Um, Mm. And that's one part of it. So there's these smooth damage functions that simply aren't likely to be reflected in reality. Um, So the fact that they're smooth is wrong. Also, the numbers that you put on them are basically made up out of complete whole cloth from this assumption that 87% mm-hmm. of the economy is not impacted by climate change at all. And these bizarre plots where you're plotting GDP against temperature, um, you know, so saying there's a five degree difference between Florida and, and North Dakota, and that somehow tells you that five degrees has a, a relatively weak impact on GDP. This is ludicrous because the point is that the people and the economies of Florida and North Dakota have adapted to the temperatures of Florida and North Dakota, the industries that exist. And they depend upon the existence of Florida depends upon North Dakota and vice exactly. versa. It doesn't mean that you could have a functioning American economy if North Dakota was as hot as Florida and Florida became Dubai or whatever. Mm. You know, This mm. could be the sort of thing that might possibly be adaptable in the long term. But as another famous economist said, in the long term, we're all dead, you know. We see it. Well, that's the thing. I mean, we'd be massively dead. This, this is the other thing. There's no, there's no concept of time change in systems over time in their work. So they've got, they've got time has to turn because they've got to have you know numbers on the x-axis that it would look like years. Um, but in terms of dynamic processes, one of the obvious ones is um, formation of topsoil. Mm-hmm. Because uh, you're going to have agriculture, that tiny 4% of the economy we can do without. Um, you're going to have t- agriculture, you've got to have topsoil. And if you then have a rapid rate of transition uh, in the economy, then you can have a, a rate of, of, of transition of where agriculture should be that's far faster than the rate of formation of topsoil. So a lot of their models, and they, when they disaggregate and, and try to break it down to what's the impact upon different regions of the world, one of the ones that's going to really benefit is Siberia. Mm-hmm. That's going to be good. Okay, so in a hundred years, Siberia has to build enough topsoil to support the the disappearance of of, of Utah, not Utah, of, of Kansas as a source of a source of uh, of wheat. And of course, if you have a transition which takes a hundred years, and we go from a world uh, in which there's you know uh, 
it's frozen tundra to um, to 20 degrees above above uh, zero, um, you're not going to have any topsoil. Mm -hmm. So all those elements of, of the rates of change are left out of their thinking and they, could, they pretend we can remain in equilibrium all the way through. So this is the complete lack of physicality to the way they think about how the economy functions. And you can see so many of the wider flaws in neoclassical economics coming through specifically in this. You know, We've talked about the equilibrium mm. assumption being nonsense. We've talked about the lack of uh, understanding of human behaviour being meaningless. We've talked about the fungibility that's assumed in things like GDP uh, being a big problem mm. for pr sort of proper societal and economic analysis. And we see in climate change very often that the, the problem is not just the change itself, but the rate of change. Ecosystems can't adapt yeah. in time. Uh, species that have certain regions where they can live can't move in time. If, if things were happening incredibly gradually over thousands of years, yeah, perhaps the human economy could adapt. But the fact is that the rate of change in terms of CO2 and temperature is faster than it has ever been. Uh, over you know many of the eras that we can observe through paleoclimate and, and see that has, what has happened in the past. And th it's this rapid rate of change, as well as the magnitude of the change, that means changes are unlikely to be smooth and are more likely to be uh, chaotic and very difficult to predict with this kind of basic, simple, linear modelling. Yeah, and then in that case, you can't use cost-benefit analysis, which therefore they assume those things don't exist because they want to use cost-benefit analysis. Yeah. And that's the big problem, isn't it? Because we're sort of sitting here and tearing apart some academic work and it's very enjoyable. But the reason it has a big problem to it is that this cost-benefit analysis is then used to justify weak climate policy. If you think that the damages of climate change will only be 8% of GDP, then you can justify to yourself saying with a sort of discount rate or, a, or a, you know an alternative economic analysis, well, it makes more sense for us to continue to invest in uh, other things, other problems, other damages, um, instead, because ultimately, if we neglect climate change, oh dear, we've lost 8% of GDP, but we've gained it back anyway, because we invested in something else, um, whether that's the financial sector or whatever it may be, you know, we, we have gained back that GDP in our economy through separate means. And it doesn't really matter that much if we prevent this. Uh, and if I read you right, some of your contention, and particularly the, the paper, uh, the appalling neoclassical economics of climate change, which a lot of this is coming from, is mm. that you you believe that some economists had already decided, or at the very least had strong priors, that the impact on climate change and the economy and economic growth would be small. I mean, there's no other way of looking at it than that, because otherwise they wouldn't come to these conclusions, would they? And um, do you think... Oh, exactly. They, 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 you know, they started from that position. Yeah, you yeah. think they've started from... And, you know, we talked about Richard Toll. Um, there, there's a famous interaction that you quote in the paper he had on Twitter where he was talking about a 10 degrees Celsius rise in global temperatures, which is beyond even things that we've modelled. Um, the models probably mm. just catch fire if you try and model a 10 degree rise in global temperatures. <laughs> um, he says that we would handle that just by, quote unquote, moving indoors as the Saudis have. I know. I and know. when that's the kind of thing that people are saying who are coming up with these papers, you know, that we can just blithely have a 10 degree rise in temperatures and everyone will move indoors and use air conditioning and it will be okay. And the economy and the population wouldn't collapse as a result. You just have to assume that they're coming into this with bias and finding the conclusions that they that they want to find. Yeah, and the, the fundamental bias is they believe capitalism is the best possible social system uh, and therefore it can't be threatened by anything. And one way to prove it can't be threatened by anything is to make the threat look trivial. And do you think that that is fundamentally it, is that they just don't want any intervention? They have these ideas that there can't be any interventions in the economy to redirect aspects of the economy or is it a technological optimism 
or is it just that it would wreck their theory to admit that not everything is a smooth curve that can be covered by GDP? These bastards wouldn't understand technology; they fell over it. Um, so it, 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 it's, it's a belief about the nature of capitalism, uh, because they start from believing it's. Uh, if, you, if you read, there's, there's, a, there's a paper I'd recommend people taking a look at, which is a the survey that uh, expert opinion on climate change that Nordhaus did in, in 1994. That one paper, well, that you know you're not dealing with experts. So it's, it's just, just read that single paper. But in that, you'll find them talking. Uh, when, when the economists are interviewed about what they think is going to happen, a, a regular phrase they'll use uh, is, the, is the incredible adaptability of human economies. And they just simply think that ca- capitalism will, um, uh, can always adapt to any, any particular change and, um, and therefore uh, climate change will be uh, small potatoes. Um, and, and it's all about this uh, idea that it's um, because we have, we have a model a model of the economy where change is easy. You simply you know, draw one pair of intersecting lines and there's your price and quantity and draw another pair and there's a new price and quantity. Bang, it happens instantly because, look, it only took me 30 seconds to draw it on the whiteboard. Um, that, that thinking has become into their minds. They think capitalism is as adaptive as their models are. So this is model identification problem. You believe your model is reality. Mm-hmm. And therefore, of course, in, in, your, in your model, nothing can go wrong. Therefore, reality must be the same way. And then this has led them to all this nonsense uh, and a complete misunderstanding of climate change. If, if Nordhaus had taken a course in climate change from somebody like Michael Mann, uh, he would, in, in, in a condition of being able to write papers on the topic, was passing the course. A, he would have failed on first attempt, and B, he would never have, if he actually really realised what it was, he would never have written any of the nonsense there written. Here's my favourite. What might explain, the, uh, lead, uh, you're talking about that he had two out of three scientists who were interviewed uh, uh, answered the questions were asked, one refused. Um, but this, this is a quote. Uh, about the qualitative difference in attitudes between scientists, two scientists, and the eight non, non, uh, non-environmental economists they interviewed, one being Larry Summers. So just to, just to sort of clarify here, you're talking about Nordhaus's expert survey of opinion on climate change, for which he got eight economists, three climate scientists, one of the climate scientists refused to answer the question because it was ill-posed. The major impression that emerges from this survey is that experts hold vastly different views about the potential economic impact of climate change. At one extreme are the natural scientists, all three of whom have profound concerns about the economic impacts of greenhouse warming. Uh, at the other extreme are the other subdisciplines of economics, brackets those whose principal concerns lie outside environmental economics. These eight respondents see much less potential for calamitous outcomes. They, they expected a they said one thirtieth of the magnitude estimated by natural scientists. And then he says, what might lead to such a difference in output? One respondent suggested whimsically that it was hardly surprising, given that economists know little about the intricate web of natural ecosystems, whereas scientists know equally little about the incredible adaptability of human economies. And in, in and, and being asked what the impact was, they simply said, oh, well, capitalism will adapt, adapt, so the impact is going to be zero. And you just take that on faith because you have no... You it's have faith. absolutely no it's faith. Uh, yeah, this is... empirical evidence for that. None whatsoever. You, you quote a guy, Di Canio, in the paper who's saying, is economics even the most appropriate lens through which to view climate at all? If we have an existential risk, say a water fight or a meteorite to deflect and people propose ideas, people don't say, let's do this in the most cost-effective way possible. They say, <laughs> we have to defeat the Nazis, we have to uh, deflect the meteorite if we're Bruce Willis in that action film. Um, the, the feasibility and likelihood of achieving our objective 
is what we consider first and foremost and not the economics of it. Mm. And I think there's a temptation in climate policy to try to establish market-based solutions that will do things in the most cost-effective way. And I wonder if you've come across the work of a guy, uh, Professor Duncan McLaren. He wrote a paper which is called The Coevolution of Technological Promises uh, and uh, Climate Policy, essentially. And the point that he makes is that a lot of our climate policies are guided by these integrated assessment models, uh, which try and determine how uh, we can most cost-effectively solve climate change. Um, which technologies we need to deploy in terms of renewables, in terms of carbon capture, in terms of nuclear and so on, Mm. to reduce our carbon emissions. And the point that he makes is that lots of these models, obviously these models are only as good as the assumptions that you put into them about how technology is going to evolve. And they tend to focus on new technologies that can be developed and deployed. So in the 1980s, there was a lot of focus on nuclear. In the 1990s, carbon capture. These days, these negative emissions technologies to take CO2 out of the atmosphere. And what these models tend to do is they tend to advise that it will be cheaper to wait for technological innovation to make things cheaper and then deploy them in a few years rather than acting now. And this is partly down to the discount Mm. rate and partly down to assumptions about how technology develops. Um, I think any technologist worth their salt will understand that things get cheaper when you deploy them, not just from first order innovation, uh, developing a new type of technology. And particularly in the case of some of these technologies, which are quite mature, the thing is to get on and invest in them and uh, you learn how to deploy them better through actually deploying them in the first place. But the problem Mm. when these models are over-optimistic about how cheap these new technologies will be is that it allows us to prevaricate and procrastinate. Obviously, you know, there are people who will say the powers that be want us to prevaricate and procrastinate. So it's not a surprise that we have models that tell us that we can wait five, 10 years and that the job of today's government is to invest in technologies that will solve the problem rather than deploy technologies that exist today. And then, of course, when these technologies don't materialise, we're further on down the road, we've emitted more carbon, we've got a bigger economy, which is more dependent on fossil fuels. And this is coming out of these economic models, which are always telling us to have faith in future technologies rather than behavioural and societal change now and deploying the technologies that exist now. We're instead encouraged to wait for them to be cheaper or wait for our economy to be larger so that it's a smaller fraction of our GDP to deploy them, if that makes sense. And so there's a combination of this discount rate idea and the assumptions about technology that are faulty. And I wonder if you've you've come across some of these integrated assessment models and had a chance to dig into some of the assumptions here and the workings here and and whether you think this, this thing should just be completely abandoned and we should just, instead of waiting for technologies to come along, simply think about a completely alternative approach that doesn't focus on the most cost-effective, cost-minimizing way. Because all of this comes out of an assumption about what will the pathways that will minimize cost in the future. That's what causes you to delay and prevaricate today. And the problem, of course, is that if your prediction of how, thing, how much things will cost in the future is fundamentally flawed or turns out to be incorrect or is path-dependent, then your model is projecting a pathway that simply won't exist and won't occur in reality. Yeah, I mean, and this is the reason I think the, the, the analogy a while ago to a meteor strike is a good one, uh, because if you treated climate change like a meteor strike and say we've got to you've got to prevent the meteor hitting us, then it's a question of what's going to achieve that as soon as possible, not what's going to do it the most cost-effective way. Uh, but by making the whole thing about uh, costs and and minimising impact upon GDP and so on, they've framed the debate in such a way that we think there are trade-offs and that there are technological solutions uh, which will evolve over time we don't have. 
And the, tr- but the trouble is, I mean, partly I'm, I'm going to forgive economists a, a, a bit on this because I think it's impossible to focus the minds of humanity uh, on an on a existential threat until it exists. Mm-hmm. Until it's and COVID obvious. has been a great example of that. Yeah, I mean, we, we, you know, some of the decisions that are made. I know, for example, I've been I've been told that uh, there was a minister responsible for decisions about stockpiling for pandemics in the UK, and was asked asked for recommendation from the experts how many masks should we stockpile. The answer was a billion. She balked at that and uh, said, let's best make 50 million instead. And of course, when the crisis comes along, you've got one mask per English person rather than 20, which is what you need during a pandemic. Um, so so only when we do it, oh, well, why haven't we got the mask? So we decided not to produce them because it was too costly. Oh, great, thanks very much. Uh, and, and then you find yourself panicking and have to respond after the event to the crisis, which you could have avoided if you'd, if you'd set up the system properly in the first place. Uh, but this this is humanity. We tend to do it all the time. I, I mean, there would have been people who are warning about, you know, soil depletion amongst the Aztecs uh, before the uh, before all the Mayan civilization before it collapsed, uh, and and you're ignored while there's still a growth trend going on, and you don't have the power that comes from sitting on top of this unsustainable trend. So um, that that's part of what economists have actually they've they've enhanced that inability of humans to respond to. A change in the trend of this society, uh, rather than rather than enhancing our capacity to change our mind, they've locked us into continuing unsustainable trends until they break, and that's what what scares me about it. If if we'd taken the warnings, the limits to growth uh, in the 1970s, it would could have meant the sort of gradual approach the economists are talking about now may have been feasible over la- over that last half century, but in that half century, we've increased the load we put on the planet by a factor of two to mm-hmm. four. And consequently, the system is so much more stressed that when we start, we're now much, much closer to a breakdown and we still haven't got anything like the change in society or change in technology to cope with it. So we're going to go into this. We're going to be as prepared for climate change as we were for COVID, uh, but with, without the bonus that COVID can actually be addressed by, by sensible public policy and and as, as I'm living in Thailand now, I can I can confirm that you know, successful public policy can defeat something like COVID. You can't defeat climate change the same way without far more drastic. People are complaining about having to wear masks mm-hmm. and being socially isolated. Climate change is going to make it look like a total picnic. Um, but you won't get people doing it before it's obvious that it's happened. So we're going to do this after the event. But economists admit we are one half century behind uh, where we could have been in responding to this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's the lack of foresight. I mean, we interviewed Martin Rees on this program. We've interviewed lots of people about various catastrophic threats. And part of the problem you come back to is these cognitive biases and this recency mm. bias and this sort of bias for near-term profits and so on that is uh, part of economic thinking as well. Um, in some mm. ways, these things kind of get encoded into these economic models. And uh, and then they spit back numbers at us. And we think, oh, OK, well, this is all mathematical. And therefore, it's been confirmed. And, you know, we're incredibly intelligent to follow mm. the uh, assumption of these models, because the numbers that they're pushing out are so precise, um, and so lacking in <laughs> nuance and uncertainty. My favourite paper by one of my, again, one of the nice guys on the, on, the, on the wrong side of this debate, made a prediction of the 3.2 degrees Celsius increase in temperature causes 7.22% fall in global GDP in 2100. 722 well, It's good to have it precisely like that, isn't it? To know exactly what's going to happen in the future. <sighs> but this is the thing. It's like a human, it's yeah. a human thing. We want to know the future um, and we want to have a closed yeah. theory of economics. We want to be able to say how the economy will respond to 
external changes and external shocks. And neoclassical economics seems to give us that, but it's sort of false reassurance that we that we know what's going on. And there's levels of uncertainty that um, it, it it gives us far too much precision uh, compared to what we actually know is going to happen. Yeah. And now we're paying for it. Or we'll start paying for it soon. When I analyze the kind of technocratic climate policy, I'm often concerned that a lot of it is guided by these unrealistic notions about how climate policy will really be implemented in the world. So again, we go back to these integrated assessment models, which try to find these cost-effective pathways to get to climate change targets. And often the assumption that's thrown in is something like, we impose a universal carbon tax on day one on the entire world of, say, $50 a tonne for emitting CO2. And then you have this market-based solution. All of the actors in the system respond. They fit carbon scrubbers to their coal-fired power plants. They switch their cars for electric. They pay for negative emissions where it makes sense to do that, and so on. And it's very minimalist, but this is essentially what neoclassical economics has as its solution to a lot of different problems. You know, The idea is that you can solve every problem in society, every market failure, simply with a price mechanism which implements a tax that's equal to the damage that you're doing. And then the invisible hand comes along now that all of the externalities are accounted for um, and things work themselves out. And this seems misguided in a number of ways. I mean, the first one, of course, is that there's no prospect of imposing this universal carbon tax to correct for these market failures. There are no realistic negotiations to have this going on. There are a few things like emissions trading schemes in the EU, for example, which have proved to be fairly easy to game. But there's always the concern that unless the whole world signs up to it, uh, emissions can just be outsourced to different regions of the world. Another big problem is this mm. idea that you can calculate the damage that you're doing or the so-called social cost mm. of carbon, uh, which you've surely come across. Um, and for a start, the science oh, yeah. is uncertain. You know, We don't know precisely how much damage uh, a ton of CO2 will lead to. We don't even know how much warming it will lead to necessarily because there's uncertainties about the climate sensitivity in the system. Uh, the way I see it, additional warming both does active damage that we can actually try and calculate, but it also increases the risk of future damages that we can't anticipate through bringing us closer to crossing these tipping points. And there's simply no way to calculate the second part of that damages. And it's very difficult to calculate the first part. And this gives you these huge variations in the estimates for the social cost of carbon in the literature, which makes the concept almost impossible to define. And uh, reaching my peroration here, a secondary point is that by reducing everything to this dollar value, by saying, you know, you implement the carbon tax and you turn, you convert everything that you're doing into dollars, you're again assuming this level of fungibility that doesn't exist, that everything can be exchanged mm. and that there are transfers going on uh, in the world. So, for example, if me flying around in an aeroplane indirectly contributes some small amount to a flood in Bangladesh, which destroys a farm and kills a child or something, you know, the idea of this technocratic and economic approach is that we can simply calculate the value of that in dollars and I can pay the farmer's family a few cents for my role in contributing to the calamity and everything will be fine. I mean, not only is that morally awful and factually absurd, but it's also the case that no such transfer mechanisms exist or ever seem likely to exist in the political economy that we live in at the moment. Compensation for loss or damage in climate change, inadequate as it would be, is always the most contentious part of climate negotiations. Essentially in Paris, that it's not happening at all. There's a Warsaw mechanism which acknowledges mm. that loss and damage exists, but doesn't actually force anyone to pay anyone else any amount of money, let alone you know, a, 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 an amount commensurate with the cost of carbon, even if that was a solution. So you know, in the language of the neoclassicals, we're seeing this big market failure with no feasible mechanism to address it, which can feasibly be implemented. And at that point, you start questioning whether looking at everything in this technocratic way in terms of setting prices on carbon and so on, 
that can be exchanged fungibly in these ideal models and just saying, well, okay, where our carbon tax intersects with our social cost of carbon, there we have solved the problem. You know, the assumptions of perfect information and perfect knowledge about the future are so embedded Mm. in that that the policy prescriptions that come from it might be less effective at tackling climate change than just setting limits on how much carbon we can emit in the first place. I mean, do do you think that there's much for these market mechanisms or... Oh, they're nonsense. They would have worked 50 years ago. If we'd actually done them at the time of the limits to growth study, then yes, you could have done a a gradual market mechanism would have worked because, again, they've got this totally timeless idea of market mechanisms. So they say the market will, you know, if you you make something profitable to do, then somebody will innovate to to get that profit and that'll give you the new technology. But they have no concept of the level of length of time involved in doing this. So, you know, if, if we ended up with some policy that made nuclear fusion uh, it looked like a really profitable venture. Uh, you know, it, even if it was possible, the 30-year horizon actually froze. Uh, it would take you 30 years to get there. And they leave that, that length of time out of, out of their thinking. Um, so the, these market mechanisms, which they think happen instantly, actually take a large amount of time to work. If we had 50 years, yeah, I could, I could swallow a carbon tax or carbon pricing as a mechanism. Because they've cost us 30 years by waffling about this garbage for that length of time, there's no way that a pricing mechanism can do it quickly enough. And if you can't do pricing, then you do rationing. And that's why I've started supporting. Uh, I, first, I first of all came up with the idea and then I found somebody had actually beaten me to the concept and he got in touch. Uh, the idea of carbon rationing. And my concept was to uh, use... Uh, bring about using another currency, a, a digital currency, uh, where everybody got a universal carbon credit, and that universal carbon credit was equivalent to the average for the country, um, and we all got the same amount. And then, as you spend, whether that's for consumption or investment or whatever else, you you both spend the money you have and the and your carbon credits you have, and you'll run out of carbon credits if you're rich. Mm-hmm. You won't run out of carbon credits if you're poor. So therefore, there'll be a trading mechanism between the rich and the poor to buy carbon credits. It ends up putting the onus of, 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 of on the, the financial onus on the rich rather than the poor. And of course, carbon, carbon taxes put the onus on the poor rather than the rich. The compensation is done directly because the rich have to buy them off the poor, otherwise they can't shop themselves. So you, get, you, you have a way of circumventing all the problems with, uh, with, with the carbon taxing and the, and, and the um, the, re- the compensation mechanisms mm-hmm. by something like a carbon rationing. Um, and then when it, be- when it becomes critically obvious that we have to reduce our carbon consumption dramatically over- overall, then you have a means to reduce that ration as well. Um, so I, that's, why, that's why I think the only policy I'd put forward right now that would have any, any sense apart from a massive mobilisation using what MMT tells us we can mobilise uh, is a carbon rationing parallel price system. So th- this concept of carbon rationing kind of brings me on to a specific debate that's happening in the climate community and climate policy. Um, and I would say at the moment you have something of a spectrum, which at the edges divides into two camps, who you could broadly describe as the green growthers and the degrowthers. And the first group are essentially mm. hoping that we can decouple economic growth from our growth in demand for energy Uh, or that we can decouple our production of energy from carbon emissions uh, while economic growth and activity continues unabated. So this is a bit like the kind of Green New Deal uh, type solution to climate change. You know, you have big investment in clean tech, big investment in switching to uh, electric cars and and, and whatever, uh, electrification for many different things. And through this large investment, we have green growth and we decouple the economy from 
energetic demand or we decouple energy from emissions. The second group, the degrowthers, um, have more of a focus on shifting the focus away from economic growth and towards ensuring that we live within environmental boundaries. So this is like the, the donut economics idea that Kate Rayworth has come up with and, uh, and other people. And uh, you can see there's some overlap here because the second group also needs to decouple pollution from energy demand and maybe reduce the energy demand of the economy. But they, they would focus more on reducing some types of economic activity. And I think both would agree that you fundamentally need to replace fossil fuels with clean sources of energy. I mean, that's pretty obvious. Um, but they disagree about mm-hmm. how to do it and and where the focus should be. Um, in, in some ways, it's a bit of a false dichotomy, but these, these two camps are kind of arguing with each other quite a lot when perhaps they have more in common than you might think. Um, and I think that sometimes the arguments come down to a question of what they think is political and economically feasible and so on. Um, but mm-hmm. I, I wonder where you would fall on this debate. You know, Would you want to be in the green growth camp or the degrowth camp or, or taking the point that they both have ideas that are worth pursuing oh, look, I'd, I'd want to be in the in the in the green growth but i'm forced to be in the degrowth uh, because if again if you if you take us back 50 years and imagine where you actually began to address it when the limits to growth was first published um, then it would be feasible that we could have had it you know, that they talked about tapering human population as well uh, reducing income inequality all sorts of things which would give us a vastly different world to what we have today uh, and if we'd done that, then yes, we could have done this in a gradual process, and we could have ended up with, uh, you know, a, a fairly, you know, I think their estimates for their for their balanced growth path uh, was was a level of an average standard of living three times that of, of the average American in 1970, which is pretty healthy, uh, a good standard of living. We could have got there because we've delayed it for 50 years, uh, courtesy of vested interest and neoclassical economists together then I think we've got no choice. We're going to be forced into reducing the pressure we put on the planet, and that means degrowth, um, and, and quite probably quite dramatic degrowth. We, we think it's, it's the only question is whether they're going to degrowth uh, in a controlled way or an uncontrolled way. Those are the choices, in my opinion. So you know, I, I sympathise with the green growth perspective, but I think it's degrowth, and, uh, and I, I would like to put in mechanisms which can kick in uh, when it becomes obvious we need to do that, uh, because if we don't have the mechanisms in place beforehand, it's a bit like not having masks before COVID. Uh, it, it's very hard to produce this stuff when you're in panic mode. Yes, you can't do it on the fly. I mean, it's interesting. I, for, for mm. Me, for one, I, I find it... I still, I still can't quite commit to either camp in terms of the green growth and the degrowth. I think that one, one aspect I liked was people saying, instead of degrowth, you call it post-growth. And I, that seems like a slightly different framing, but also it brings this idea of, well, are we going to evolve beyond an endlessly growing economy at some point. Presumably, eventually, we have a sufficiency in our economy um, and the problems that people have can no longer be addressed by increasing GDP. And if you look at some research like the spirit level or something, that might argue that once your GDP passes a certain point, many of your social problems come from the inequality in your society and you need to focus on something other than economic growth to fix those. Um, so I so I have some sympathy for, for degrowth people there. It also just seems incredibly difficult when you try and imagine getting the current uh, paradigm and the current people in power to ever focus on degrowth over green growth. Because, you know, if you have these two camps who do make a distinction between each other and they're both pitching to a politician, then obviously the Mm. one who says, I think we can grow the economy and tackle climate change by investing in X, Y, Z and overall sort of increasing our economic aggregate output, that person is going to win the argument and the degrowth is going to be very easy to 
tarnish or dismiss or misrepresent as you know hair shirts and going back to caveman times or whatever and it's going to be very difficult to to win that argument given how deeply embedded some of the uh, neoclassical economics and kind of neoliberal politics i guess you'd say are in our systems at the moment um so i personally i find listening to both sides very interesting but i can't really decide either which camp to belong to and also whether i'm doing it for the right reasons whether uh, it's a feasibility reason or a um, a political reason if that makes sense you like I, I try to sort of um fall in a, a, a different uh, to both those dimensions i would like us to prepare for catastrophe i i think if you try to tell people that you can have this degrowth means there being a permanent decline in in output uh, a substantial reduction in pressure on the planet over time green growth means we continue growing but we grow in ways that put less pressure on the planet i'd rather say well we're going to do we're going to continue doing exactly what we're doing now but let's at least put some mechanisms in place that if it does stuff up we have a chance to respond and go in the opposite direction so that's what i'd like to have central banks producing central bank digital currencies because they could be repurposed to be carbon rationing systems if uh, when no not if when we need them in the future when the political decision will be forced by events rather than something we do to, to stop an event happening in the first place. Uh, equally, uh, I'd, I'd want to see as much uh, innovation going into alternative energy systems. And that's where you can say, let's use some of that MMT for the moonshot of producing, for example, small-scale thorium reactors, um, you know, um, finding ways to have solar collectors in outer space, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and treat that as, as we treated the moonshot, not talking about the, the cost of doing it, but the, the innovation that it, will, that it will sponsor, which may be useful in the future. And I think the future will hit us much faster than we expect. But something we, we, we acknowledge we're going to politically fail. I mean, I think there's zero chance uh, that we are going to come up with a set of policies which will avert um, a catastrophic outcome. What will happen is we'll hit the catastrophic outcome, realise that it is catastrophic, and then have to reaction from that point. And then the question is, will we, will the things we can do before we hit that point that mean we can do something after it's hit? And um, and and that is that that's my my position. I, I've I've certainly having dealt with politicians and dealt with economists, obviously on a grand scale, uh, I, I and knowing what humanity is like as well. We don't want to be forced to change. Mm -hmm. But when you have something catastrophic hit you, you have no choice anymore. You're being forced to change by the catastrophe. Uh, but then if you've done some preparations beforehand, the outcome can be better than if you haven't. And that's what I'd like to focus mm -hmm. on. It's interesting. So it's sort of a prepare for the worst type scenario and, and knowing that we can't... Yeah, hope for the best, prepare exactly. for the worst. And knowing yeah. that we yeah. can't necessarily trust our institutions to fix these problems because the, the, this is the problem, isn't it, that... The, the bad incentive structures that have led us to this point are all still in place. Yeah, well and truly. I mean, we only got rid of, you know, we elected Donald Trump and just got rid of him a couple of days ago. But the odds are the same political position will come back. If you push to degrowth position, somebody pushing growth will come along and win the next election and wipe out the uh, everything you've done to try to achieve degrowth. So we have extremely poor political systems, and that includes democracy uh, as a very poor system for handling with a sort of systemic crisis, which we'll put ourselves into. I mean, we, we could definitely talk about this for hours, and uh, we already have in, in a way. <laughs> um, but that, there's sort of one more question that I did want to ask uh, before we finish, uh, which is one about power. Mm -hmm. um, intellectual traditions, they don't exist in a vacuum. We've come along and quite 
casually trashed Nordhaus, and that's, uh, without disrespecting your work, fairly easy to do. Um, if you actually read yeah, it. extremely it's too, too easy. easy. Precisely, too it's easy. too easy. Yeah. And yeah. if there weren't a lot of people who wanted to believe in Nordhaus or say they believed in Nordhaus, and the promises made by neoclassical economics more generally that we can have perfect knowledge of these complex systems and so on, there would be no acclaim for that work. You know, there would be no, no one would listen to him and it wouldn't get published. Um, yeah. We see that economics, or at least economism, is being used to justify policies that accelerate inequality often by people who benefit from the status quo and the inequality that exists as it is at the moment. And we know that the university system is not immune from this um, either, that there's funding issues of who gets funded and who gets published and who gets into journals and all this sort of thing. So to an extent, the, we have an intellectual structure here that justifies an existing power structure in the same way that, I don't know, the divine right of kings or the uh, different spheres or the great hierarchy of man uh, would be the sort of intellectual backing behind uh, older power structures as well. So you and, and other post-Keynesians and MMTers and so on have been on the outside poking holes in existing theories for a long time. Um, and we return to physics and this idea of paradigm shifts, which you don't think will happen in economics to the same extent, because an existing theory would be badly undermined. And then, you know, it would require a transition from one group of scientists to another and a rejection of these old incorrect assumptions. But in the case of physics, there's no power structure that is really being justified by our adherence to classical mechanics in the same way as there is in economics. You know, it's less integrated with our society. Sure, there are some professors who will lose their jobs if their, if their um, epicycle model of the cosmos proved, turns out to be wrong, and they have to go with the uh, Copernican model instead. You know, But the power structures in society aren't affected by it to the same extent. So with all that in mind, do you think there is any chance of this sea change happening in economics? And, and how could it happen? How could it start to happen, given how deeply embedded it is into power structures? Yeah, one reason, one reason I stuck my neck out and, and warned of a, a financial crisis back in 2006 and 2007 was because I could see one coming because of the dynamics of private debt that I was looking at both in Australia's case, uh, where I got dragged into by a court case as it happens on predatory lending, and then checking America, seeing the same trend over there. I thought there's got to be a financial crisis. It's going to happen. Somebody has to warn about it. And at least in Australia, I was that somebody. But I also thought that if I don't make a warning beforehand, I don't stick my neck out, whether my predictions are right or wrong, I won't be listened to afterwards. So a large part of it was sticking my neck out and, and making a claim, which was a bold claim that, that you know, I, I was confident it was going to happen and it did. Um, but even having been successful in that 10, you know, 12 years further on, um, I'm more well known and I've, I've you know, I've, I've got a status that I wouldn't have had otherwise. But the majority mainstream stuff is, is just as bad, if not worse than it was, uh, you know, before the financial crisis. The neoclassicals still dominate economic policy. They still dominate teaching of students. There's been no... Um, uh, they've, they've got to put up with students belonging to things like rethinking economics and so on these days. They get harassed and, 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 and nibbled in a way that they were never before, but they're still dominant. So that the capacity of this power structure to survive challenges like the financial crisis um, has chastened me about what, it, what is ever going to lead us to breaking away from neoclassical economics. And I fundamentally, and, and this is when I looked at Nordhaus' stuff, I was so horrified by how bad it was. I thought, well, the person who's going to bring down neoclassical economics is probably William Nordhaus. <laughs> Purely because people will see the okay. consequences of the economics that he's pushed in terms of so climate change. Who the, who the F... 
who the f led us up this garden path? Or well, it's not a it's not a garden path anymore. It's a, it's a path to Hades. Who led us up here? And that's why I'm doing it now. I think I I want to have it on the record that this was obviously bad work before we have an obviously critical environmental crisis. And then in that case, and this is why I want to appeal to scientists as much as I can now to say we have to get rid of neoclassical economics. It's got to go. And, and I, you know, I, 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 have, I have quite a few friends who are neoclassical economists. They're nice people. This is the trouble. Well, some of them, some are, some are not particularly nice, but um, quite a few very nice people who believe they're doing good, good work. And then it's a school teacher of mine, and I, I thanked him in my the second edition of Debunking Economics, a brother Gerard. We were having a class discussion one day about a politician, and half the class was attacking and half was defending this guy. And somebody said, well, at least he's sincere. And everybody nodded their heads and agreed, yes, he's sincere. And I was one of them. You know, I was criticising him, yes, he's sincere. And Brother Gerard piped up from the back of the class. He hardly ever intervened. Wonderful, wonderful guy. And he said, don't overeat sincerity. The most sincere person you'll meet in your life is the maniac chasing you down in the road with an axe trying to cut your head off. <laughs> and they, they sincerely believe they're doing good and they're effectively decapitating humanity and they're certainly going to decapitate capitalism. So I want this to be known. I want scientists to be aware of it. I want scientists to at least hear, at least scientists, if they see this stuff and see how bad it is, they can go on the attack now. They don't have to wait till after the environment proves the economists wrong. They're clearly wrong to begin with. So I want scientists in there and kicking in the, you know, the, the private parts of the neoclassical economists here and saying that this, this theory has to go. It's got to be eliminated. And the best evidence that it has to be eliminated is the delusional stuff that Nordhaus and co have published about climate change, which is a major reason why we face a major crisis in the future. It's us or the theory. Yeah, effectively, yeah. And I'd like the theory to go. Professor Keane, thank you so much, not only for being so generous with your time today, but also so much of your work to explain economics. It's always thought-provoking. I want to ask where can people find you and find more of your work and uh, things you'd like to plug on the subject of this and also more generally. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm now, I've left the academic sector, which was, <laughs> I left very dramatically, but I'm damn glad I left. My apologies to the clerical staff I, I swore at on the way out of the building. Um, but uh, I now am supported on Patreon, so, which is a, a crowdfunding source for, for creative types. So if you go to www.patreon.com slash Prof Steve Keen, you'll find my work. And the vast majority there is, is I mean, I, I like people to support what I'm doing, uh, but the vast majority of my posts there are freely accessible. So um, that's where you find my work, www.patreon.com slash Prof Steve Keen. And I'm working on two new books at the moment. One is uh, hopefully finishing... I'll be out this year, which is called uh, The New Economics and Manifesto. And I'm going to be producing uh, next year, I hope to write a third and final edition of Debunking Economics. And alongside the post, there's also the Debunking Economics podcast. There's one free episode a month. Yeah, and uh, yeah. if you subscribe to the Patreon, which I recommend and which, which I've done, you get one every week. And that covers lots and lots of different topical issues, as well as more broad issues in economics. So that, 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 that is the one thing which caused that's with my good mate, Phil Dobby. We have a, a lovely discussion and uh, that's uh, that's for the ten dollars and ten dollars a month and up subscribers get the, the podcast. One is free, as you say, yeah. So that's uh, that puts a bit of human flavour yeah, on. Yeah. So some of the concepts that we've just touched on here in the past hour or two on uh, things like the debt jubilee, the carbon rationing, the energy model of economics, which I think is a really interesting innovation as well. All of those things are covered in more detail in earlier episodes of this particular podcast, and you'll also be able to find you know responses to news events, um, Trump, uh, Brexit. Uh, all, all that sort of thing. So I, I do 
strongly recommend that to people to listen to if they want to find out more about your perspective on all of those issues. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction, and thank you to Steve Keen for being so generous with his time and agreeing to be interviewed. You can find Steve on Patreon at patreon.com slash profstevekeen, where you will have access to a good number of podcasts and posts on economics for free, and where you can subscribe for further access to more shows. He's also on Twitter at profstevekeen, where you can keep up with the latest news on his work. You can find our show online at physicpodcast.com. There you'll find the episode list on the About page, where you can find all of the episodes we've done on subjects ranging from the birth of stars to the end of the world and everything in between, and the episodes on the ongoing Climate 201, where we talk about the science, economics and policy of climate change in much more depth, along with all of the different interviews that we've done with various figures over the years. There you can also get in touch with me with any comments, questions or concerns you might have about the episodes through the contact form, and you'll also find links to support the show on PayPal for a one-time donation, or Patreon for longer-term subscriptions and access to bonus content. Thanks very much to everyone who has supported the show already. Until next time then, please do take care.